is from the Gospel of John in the seventh chapter. It's located on page 894 of your Pew Bibles. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> We believe at Christ Presbyterian Church the Bible is supernaturally inspired by God. It is infallible, we believe, inerrant in the original manuscripts. You say, what do you mean? Well, John, under God's leading under God's inspiration, wrote his manuscript. But that was before the day of printing presses. So how did John get his book out to the world, his gospel to the world? A scribe copied it. And then another scribe copied it. And another scribe copied it. And copies of those New Testament books spread through the Mediterranean area. Sometimes, just like you do when you are copying something, you can leave out an is or an and or might leave out a word. So in the research of these ancient documents, uh, and that's come a long way, and we know great details that we didn't know 500 years ago or 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. But most of that scholarship studying these ancient manuscripts look at this passage that's before us today and say that, you know, we don't think that that was in John's original writing and there is this is not if if you're saying if you're sitting there saying hey wait a minute is is this guy standing in the pulpit if you're a visitor is, is he some kind of, of liberal that doesn't trust scripture 
You know me. I've just said that I believe Scripture is inerrant and infallible. So if this scholarship looks at it, and these are conservative, Bible-believing scholars, they look at it and say, we're not sure that was in the original. Then why are we looking at uh, this passage this morning? Uh, some, some scriptures, just some Bibles today, just leave it completely out. There are some ministers that would come to this and say, no, we're just going to skip this. But so, so why would I include it in our study? Well, first, we cannot be sure with absolute certainty that it should be excluded. We can't. It could be that it wasn't the original, but the scribes copying the manuscript thought it was inappropriate because of Jesus' treatment of this adulteress. The story does fit in the immediate historical narrative of Jesus being in the temple and under attack from the Jewish leaders during the Feast of Booths. We've seen that in the last two weeks, and it fits that. It just, you know, if you if you didn't know, if you didn't hadn't, hadn't had the research, you'd say, well, this just fits right where it is. The story also fits the gospel narrative of Jesus' extreme grace and forgiveness for those and several other reasons. I've chosen to include it in our study this morning. If you have questions about that, see Blake Neal. <laughs> Blake Neal said, this better be good or I'm going to have a lot of questions for you. So I'll just turn them over to him. But <clears throat> we must pray this morning. A real prayer of healing. We've got a got a list, folks, of people that are, are very ill. So let's pray and be priests for a moment and then ask God to bless us as we open his word. Our Father, we do bow before you as your priests here in Fayette County. And Father, I just list these names. You know them. John and Carol Leak in Alabama. Father, they're both very, very sick. Richard McKenzie, Rick's father, Mr. and Ms. Walker, Bob and Jay's father and mother, Holly Simon, Larry Fury's friend, Robert Gardner's mother, Penny, Ben Kenny. All those people we gather before you this morning and we thank you for what you've already done in their lives in bringing healing. And Father, we pray that you will spare each one, cause their doctors, cause their nurses, cause the people that are close to them in charge of their treatment, cause them to see what they need to see and hear what they need to hear to bring healing to them. Oh, Father, we thank you for how you've blessed this congregation and how you've spared us, how you've healed us over and over and over again. And so we lay these before you this morning, just like those four men laid that paralytic before Jesus. We lay them before you in prayer, before your great throne. 
Oh, Father, heal them. Heal them for the glory of Christ. Now, as we open your word, we know that John Sartell cannot teach in a way that will make any difference in our lives. He can't teach so that our hearts would be changed or so that we would grow in Christ, so that we would be changed from the inside out. Our Father, you know that I know that. You know that I believe that. And I believe these people believe that. And so all of us together turn to you and call out as children to a father. Oh, Father, teach us this morning. Teach us by the power of your spirit. May we know when we leave here in a few minutes that you have spoken in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. How could a righteous and just judge say that? We saw last week that the theme of John 7 is the firestorm that engulfed that specific feast of booths in Jerusalem where Jesus was. Jesus was at the center of that firestorm. We looked at it last week. This story that opens chapter 8 shows us that the firestorm continues. It wasn't limited to chapter 7. A woman was brought to Jesus by the religious authorities that so hated and deplored Christ and were conspiring against him. They had caught her in the act of committing adultery. And they came to Jesus to render a verdict. He claimed to be the Messiah. That's what they would have said. The long-promised king and Messiah of Israel. What verdict would you render, Jesus, on this? Now, these men were not showing respect for Jesus. They did not believe his claims. They had been plotting to kill him because of his blaspheming claims. This was an effort on their part to destroy him. Well, how would that happen through this? In the law of Moses, adultery was punishable by death. Death for the man and death for the woman for committing adultery. Well, why such a serious punishment? Adultery was an attack on the very foundational stone of civilization and of Israel. It was an attack on the family, on the home. And God had said in the beginning that the home, that marriage, that the family would be the foundational stone of civilization. So this was, in, in the Old Testament, the prophets realized Adultery just struck at the very foundation of civilization, of their country. So they rendered for adultery the death sentence. Now, these men were setting up a trap for Jesus. If Jesus rendered a guilty verdict and said stone her, these religious leaders would run to the Roman authorities and say here is Jesus 
And he is promoting an execution without Roman authority. Now, the Roman government allowed the local courts some authority in the punishment of crime. But no local court could issue a death sentence. If, if, if a death sentence was issued and carried out without the Roman authority, whoever did that would be subject to death themselves. If Jesus did not render a verdict demanding that this lady's life be forfeited, he would be in direct conflict with Old Testament law. He would be denying the inspiration and authority of God's law. Now I want us to stop right in the middle of this scene. You're in this scene. And consider the extreme wickedness of these religious leaders who were supposed to be so godly. They were participants in an evil that was much greater than the evil that the woman had committed. First, if they had caught the woman in the midst of this act, and that's what they said, where is the man who was just as guilty as this lady? For some reason, they had let him go. He probably, he could have been and probably was a part of their conspiracy how would they know the place? How would they know the time unless someone had told them? They were not zealous for the fulfillment of the keeping of the law in this issue. They were not zealous to punish her. They, it was not about her. They were after Jesus. They were willing to drag this woman from the scene of adultery straight into the public and shame, into the public shame of the temple for all the people to see. The goal in all of this was to get rid of Jesus. Compare how these men treated the woman without Jesus treated her. They were simply uncaring, simply using her to get to Jesus. How did Jesus respond? This is so strange. He stooped down and began to write in the dust. Now there were all sorts in, in studying this passage. There were all sorts of suggestions by the commentaries about what he wrote. They were all over the place. However, as you study this passage, there is one explanation that is both biblical and powerful. Read the exact words that Jesus, of what Jesus did, describing what Jesus did. Look at verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. He wrote with his finger. Where else in Scripture does someone write with their finger? Look on your scripture sheet at Exodus or in your Bibles at Exodus 31, 18. 
And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Here were these two stone tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. They were written with what? The finger of God. Look at Deuteronomy 9.10. Moses is at the end of his life, and he's preaching to Israel in a sermon. And this is what he says. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. When Jesus kneeled and began to write in the dust, I think he was alluding in a subtle way to his identity. Remember, he's, he's been claiming over and over and over and over again to be the Son of God from glory. And I think in a very subtle way, he was making that claim again. I think he began to write on the ground the commandments. Now, this would have taken a moment or two. We read in verse 7, and as he was doing this, and as they continued to ask him, he begins to write in the dust. They don't understand what he's doing at first. And they impatiently press him to say something. Well, when he had written the brief list, we read, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. By law in the Old Testament, the actual witnesses who bore testimony in the court, if the verdict was rendered and the person was guilty, the witnesses were to be the first to throw the stones. So Jesus looks at him. He points, the law is written there with his finger on the ground. And he said, whoever among you is without sin. Look at these commandments. Whoever hasn't broken this commandment or that commandment, you can throw the first stone. Then he stooped and began to write again. R.C. Sproul wrote that we don't know what he wrote the second time, but maybe he just, beside the commandment, you shall not steal, wrote Benjamin. Maybe a name from one of those men. Beside you shall not covet, he wrote Judah. Jacob, besides you shall not commit adultery. He was forcing each one of them to recognize their sin before God's law. After his piercing statement, well, no, let's stop here for a minute. We need to hear those words from Jesus. We as Christians, for some reason, 
have the proclivity to forget or dismiss our sinfulness. And at the same time, we have the tendency to look at the sins of others with condemnation. Now, these men were looking at that this adulterous. And Jesus was forcing them to look at themselves in relationship to God's law. I have a proclivity to do this. I think Christians, I think humanity does, but I think we as Christians have a proclivity. It comes from being a habit of seeing other people's sins and not looking at ourselves. Look at the process of our salvation. The first act in the process of salvation is what? Recognizing that we're sinners. Recognizing that we need a Savior. Confessing our sins. In light of that, how can we pretend that we're not sinners? After his piercing statement, after he stoops to write again, the accusers begin, begin to leave. The older and wiser men were the first to walk away, and then the young firebrands followed. Jesus stood, and for the first time he addressed the woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? The woman answered, No one, Lord. Now the word Lord there is a word that you read throughout the Gospels. When people address Jesus, the word Kyrios, Lord, was used of Caesar, Kyrios Caesar, Lord Caesar. It could be used, that same word could be used to and translated as sir. She could have been saying, no one, sir. Just using it as a polite recognition, but certainly not the full aspect of Lord. And some translations have her saying, no one, sir. I think she's actually calling him Lord. Why do I think that? We've already seen it would be quite impossible for that woman not to know who Jesus was, not to know his claims. Everyone in Israel knew about him, knew his name, knew what he had done. She could have just said, looked at him and said, no one, no one, Jesus. But she said, no one, Lord. Have you ever looked at Jesus, looked at him personally, 
and just called him Lord. Do you remember when you first did that? Maybe you'd say, well, I looked at him and called him Savior. Well, you could use that. But do you remember the first time you looked at him and you recognized his lordship? Not just sir, not just being polite, but the Lord of lords, the King of kings, my Lord. I think that's what she was saying. No one, Lord, no one. What would Jesus say to her? There stood Jesus, the Son of God from glory, the one who will judge all mankind and all of history on that final day of reckoning. There stood a woman guilty of adultery before him. She had just come from an adulterous scene. Here's the Son of God. His judgment must be accurate. It must be just. It must be a perfect justice. It must be holy. This just judge from glory utters words that would seem impossible for a holy God to say to a rebellious adulteress. He looked at her and said, Neither do I condemn you. If you don't turn, if you really recognize who this is, if you don't turn to him when he says that and ask, Jesus, how can you say that? You don't understand. I know, Jesus, I know that you know that she's guilty of this vile sin. Now stop right here for a moment. There is, there is a liberalism within the Catholic Church, a liberalism within the Protestant Church that would say Jesus is just loving and tender. The bruised breed he will not break. We sang about his gentleness in the first hymn. And says, well, just, he's able to say that. He's able to just forgive. And that's it. You could say to Jesus, we could say, we know that you know that she's guilty of this sin. And Jesus does know because he said, go and don't do this anymore. Listen to what Jesus said about adultery when he spoke to the church at Thyatira in Revelation. Look at Revelation 2, 18. And really look at this. Understand. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, Jesus is speaking. He says, John, write these words. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Now, this is the same Jesus saying this. This is the exact same Jesus, people, who was speaking to the woman and said, neither do I condemn you. How can the just judge from glory say that? Is he corrupt? Is he an unjust judge? How can he be true and an honest judge? And let the criminal go free. You know, we want justice, even in this fallen world. Everyone wants justice. Someone comes to your home. In the middle of the night, invade your home, beats your family, beats your husband unmercifully, beats your wife unmercifully, abuses your children, ruins your house, steals, leaves your family in the hospital. Critical condition. The police catch the culprits. But all the stolen goods are gone. Their house is in bad repair. The court finds them guilty. You haven't been to the trial, but you go to hear the verdict. And you hear the judge say, I know you're guilty, but I cannot condemn you. And I do not condemn you. Don't do this ever again. Is God, is God like that? Is God like that judge? Is grace simply this grace that we don't deserve? This grace, is it a great injustice? Is God crooked? This same John wrote a letter to the early church. We know it as 1 John. And in chapter 2, verse 1, of 1 John, he writes these words. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now notice, he calls him righteous. Jesus is righteous. When we sin, like this woman, we have an advocate. When we're neck deep in sin. What does Jesus say as our lawyer? I've always self-righteously said, 
I would have a hard time defending a client that I knew was guilty of murder or theft or whatever. I guess I would be trying to find some technicality or make some argument so that he could walk. Well, what does our lawyer Jesus say when, he, when, when we've sinned? When I've sinned, what does, my, what does Jesus say? Father, John is really not that bad. Father, I know he's done that for the 25th time this week. But look how much good he's done. Father, please, for my sake, give him another chance. John, John, he, John he just, you know, he doesn't realize what he's doing. What does Jesus say when he argues my case? There's only one argument. And I know. Jesus shows to the court. He shows his hand and his side. And the case is closed. Jesus addresses the father. Yes, John is guilty. But John's debt to the law of God has been paid. His sentence has been served. He looks at the father and says, actually says, I want justice. Because justice says that John's sin and debt to the law has already been paid. You must set him free. I've taken his sin, his guilt, his punishment. We love the symbol of the cross. Many of us have a necklace, have a bracelet. It's a cross on it. What organization would choose for its symbol a hangman's noose, an electric chair, a firing squad, or a gas chamber? We would not want to be a member of that organization. But we already are. The cross is our symbol. It was the instrument of execution in the first century. We wear it. We are saying with that cross, paid. My sins, my crimes, my cosmic tre treason, every lie, every lust, every piece of hate, every sexual immorality, the debt is paid. The sentence has been served. Jesus could only say that to the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Because there was a cross in Jesus' future. He would take her adultery. He would take our idolatry, our blaspheming of God's name, our stealing, our murder, our lying, our adultery, our coveting, our selfishness, our materialism. He would take it on himself. And the righteous judge would not say that day at Golgotha, Neither do I condemn you. 
Those words were not said to Jesus by the Father. The righteous judge of glory would throw the first stone to the last stone until his holy justice had been met. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, people, he did not look at that woman winking at her sin, saying, neither I condemn you. He tenderly in mercy said that because he, at great cost to himself, would pay her debt the law of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one hymn to sing. Jesus paid it all.